Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. What do the following have in common? Eric Korn, Ian Jackson, John Windle, and the Book Collector. The answer is eccentricity. Eric Korn had it in spades, seven of them doubled and redoubled. And so it goes in diminishing degree down the list to the Book Collector which brings you and enjoys bringing you all shades of eccentricity and eccentricity in these book collector podcasts. Today, we bring you John Windle reading one of Korn's essays for the TLS that were printed in Remainders, published in 1989. Ian Jackson's extraordinary obituary of Korn was published in our winter issue for 2014. To put in context what I am about to read, I should say that Eric Korn was invited by Jonathan Miller on very short notice to translate Andromaque, a play by Racine. In this short essay, Eric muses on the fact that the publishers cheated him at the last minute with inappropriate revisions of his text, and that the publication itself is quite scarce. A quick check on the internet reveals a copy for sale on Amazon for $4. With that, let's listen to Eric Korn. Written on the 2nd of February, 1988, it is entitled, How I Shot J.R. I never should have stopped off there for coffee. All I had in mind was a quick jolt of java, a moment of mocha, a poke of peaberry, with Jonathan Miller, old-school chum and man of parts, both theatrical and anatomical. Miller, as every newspaper reader knows, and knows wrongly, is a man who loves perverting olden goldies, wrenching the classics out of their God-given contexts. Who can forget his Welsh Macbeth, his Eskimo Carmen, the master singers of Eilat? Critical judgments may differ, but one thing is sure. He doesn't like to have the context-wrenching done for him. He had commissioned a new translation of Andromaque from a poet justly celebrated for his innovative skill and precision of language. Craig Raim, whom I revere, is not one to be cramped by a confining mandate, and had used Racine as a launching pad for a flight of more than Martian distance from the original. His version was set in 1955. A parallel universe, 1955, where the Second World War is dragging out its Trojan length. Situations, characters, and sentiments were correspondingly modified. Picture Miller's chagrin. This was not what he meant at all. In desperation, his wife, children, and Cat had already turned him down, he turned to me. I inspected my qualifications. 
they seemed largely negative. I wasn't a poet and had no objectives of my own. I wasn't fettered by excessive reverence. My French was not sufficiently precise for me to be pedantic. I wasn't unduly alarmed by the prospect of critical abuse. I was doomed. A few strategic decisions were swiftly made. A prose racine was unthinkable. I'm less sure now. You can't write Alexandrines unless your name happens to be Alexander. At least, I can't. Other rhyming couplets produced a seasick jig-jog. If the play was to be Englished, and refer however faintly to a poetic tradition, then more or less blank, more or less verse seemed indicated. Approachability was the overriding objective. No archaisms, no poeticisms, Racine's narrow and intense vocabulary, those recurring funestre coureux, those feu fer and vœux, the perfide, mépris, cruel, ingrat, would have to be avoided, varied, and diluted. I wanted a diction nearly but not quite contemporary, not Sloane or Eastender, but faintly formal civil service speech, reaching in anger or fear or jealous passion for rather dated colloquialisms and the clichés of sentiment a language occasionally heightened, but never attempting the sublime. The target was demystification, to let the extravagances of passion seem all the clearer for not being wrapped in extravagance of language, and to transmit as much of the original irony as might be. My Amstrad... It had just corrupted a disc and been sent to Computer Coventry, but I must be fair, was ideal for scratching away at text. But I finished the last two acts in a self-induced rush on trains, in station buffets and hotel rooms zigzagged about Kent and Hampshire in the wake of a hurricane. Everywhere, statesmen-like oaks, queenly ashes and proud poplars lay felled or in undignified sprawls, like Racinian heroes toppled by blasts of emotion. For all my intentions, I began to have ideas above my station. Characterizations began to impose themselves. On the basis of an astounding speech, where Pyrrhus blames Hermione for the war crimes he has committed and then generously agrees to forgive her, I began to see him as a Vietnam apologist explaining how the Cambodians had bombed themselves. Likewise, Hermione became the prototypical crazy lady of yuppie nightmare movies. Exchange a few words and you're on the road to psychosis. And Orestes, I regret to say, presented himself as Marvin the paranoid android from Douglas Adams's books. Their idioms began correspondingly to diverge. Only Andromach's style should remain consistently elevated. 
Likewise, I permitted the confidants to be fractionally more demotic in speech, nannyish, or schoolmasterly, or ladies made like. Pylades, who is traditionally as princely as Orestes, I began to see as one in the long line of NCOs and other military gentlemen who come to clear the stage of the mess of corpses and emotions left by their betters. The municipal dust cart after the Lord Mayor's show. This led me, delighted by my own daring, to one real extravagance. I translated the closing couplet, Sauvons-le, nos efforts deviendraient impuissants s'il reprend ici sa rage avec ses sens. As, lift him. Look sharp, there's fuck all we can do if he's still raving mad when he comes to. I rubbed my hands, saved to disc, and smirked. I need not have bothered. I could have handed over the text and gone my way, but a long-suppressed yearning for glitter and grease paint led me to haunt the old Vic. I watched entranced the embryological miracle of pages becoming performance, and was overcome by mawkish, priestlyish good companionship at being allowed to feel part of a company. We worked at the text, changing a score or two of lines that grated or jarred when grating and jarring were not wanted. The cast professed enthusiasm. Some critics, to whose insight I defer, tell me that this is not so, and that the cast were obviously unhappy with the text. If their enthusiasm was feigned, then they are even better actors than I took them for. Bothrotum in Epirus, I discover, is modern Butrota, a small city on the Corfu Channel. Have we unjustly neglected the Albanian dimension? I make a number of ingenious suggestions which are inexplicably ignored. Fuck all stood no chance. There is no tradition of proletarian backchat in Racine, and though the production may be designed to remove incrustations of veneration, it is not designed to subvert the author. Besides, everyone can predict what the press would make of a four-letter classic. I gracefully surrender and reserve my version for the soon-to-be-published text with a note which refers to Pylades as an NCO talking to his squaddies, reverting thankfully to his idiolect when all the members of the officer class are busy elsewhere, or dead, or mad. I am inordinately proud of it. The publisher has his doubts, but passes the proofs. I missed the first preview because I am moving. Three humans, seven quadrupeds, and 11,000 books. Jonathan Miller is a little perturbed at unexpected laughter at a few lines. We adapt and adjust. The following night, there is unsought laughter in other places. We adjust further. What's left seems to be genuine discomfort, which is not unwelcome. Two lines which regularly get a murmur, for which the translation will come to be blamed. Who told you to? Not a radical rendering of qui tu l'a dit. And Orestes, thank you, heaven, my misery is more than I dared hope for, 
which is excoriated as a piece of ludicrously anachronistic post-Freudian paranoid posturing. The original is Grâce au Dieu, mon malheur passe mon espérance. The first night passes with the usual number of mishaps. Local EMT wards have been scoured for whoopers, hackers and gaspers. Come on, Dad. Wrap up warm and bring lots of ankies. The theatre air will do wonders for your poorly throat. We had a full grand mal epilepsy in a preview. The cast responded with stoical professionalism, not unmixed with professional stoicism. Speaking of stoicism, my own pleases and relieves me. What does it feel like to be generally abused? Not much, actually. The general critical opinion is that I have traduced a noble poet, besmirched a fine set, betrayed splendid actors. Racine, the argument in some places runs, is an old-fashioned poet and should be translated into old-fashioned words. I have turned a tragedy into a comedy or possibly a melodrama. A comedy says the Evening Standard, which also says that Jonathan Miller wasn't there. More curiously, Milton Schulman, in a not wholly hostile review, complains about various idioms, including one, shootout, that had been cut the previous day. Has he taken to reviewing previews? a frightful discourtesy to the actors, or has he bought and read a script? An extraordinary compliment. I ask, but get an unsatisfactory answer. The Times complains that I am recklessly idiomatic. The Mail makes jokes about my name I had not thought to hear again. Hugh shall be nameless of the Daily Daily, says the gap between elevated sentiments and unelevated language can only be bridged by laughter. A curious view of the modern stage, screen, novel, and life. The worst thing that happens is that I see copies of the text on sale and rush to buy one, only to find that the publisher has had last-minute cold feet about my ending, substituting nothing for fuck all, and deleted my note. I contemplate mayhem, but am separated by the Atlantic. I reflect that it is, after all, the old Vic text, and it is something to have one's words in print, only 14 weeks after the mere idea of the project was first adumbrated. The best thing that happens that day is that I get a copy of John Robert Columbus' New Canadian Quotations, and find three entries under my name. Praises of Toronto are welcome whoever they are. Real fame. Later reviews include a couple that are complimentary, others that are critical, but at least assume that we sinned wittingly. Understanding that an afternoon's editorial session could have removed the two dozen colloquialisms that so stuck in the critical craw if director and cast had wanted them changed. One complains that the words were unsuitable for a production in 17th century dress, as though the costumes were chosen first and the translation an accessory, like an ill-matched handbag. 
But if I have committed myself to accessibility, I cannot argue with the audience. I cannot, in Brecht's phrase, nearly, dissolve the audience and elect another. How many false notes does it take to spoil a symphony? Not many. Go, ba 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 in Beethoven's fifth, and you are dead, brother. By the third performance, inappropriate laughter had vanished. Critics I respect have liked it. Didn't realize how much I respected them till now. Watch out, Berenice. I've got my eye on you. That was Eric Korn writing about his translation of Andromaque by Jean Racine, produced for the stage by Jonathan Miller. That was John Windle reading Who Shot J.R. by Eric Korn.